passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, well, uh, for the rest of us, um, it's not a typo in your bulletin. Um, we're going through two chapters this morning, so buckle up, all right? <laughs> but seriously, I have no idea how we're going to do this. Um, this is a unique passage. Uh, we're going to look at chapter 9 and chapter 10 of 1 Samuel. We've been working our way through uh, the book of 1 Samuel. And the reason why we're looking at these two chapters together is because, in one sense, they're all about the same thing. They're all about God accomplishing His eternal purposes, and these purposes um, focus or culminate in a king, uh, a king in Israel that eventually leads us to the person of Jesus. And, and the way that God does that in these chapters is incredibly unique. He uses these seemingly ordinary, mundane circumstances of, of Saul's life, and that leads to this monarchy in Israel. And this is a move, again, that culminates in the person of Jesus. And in God's timing, we're actually looking at this on Palm Sunday. This is, uh, Palm Sunday is, is kind of like the coronation of Jesus. Jesus enters into Jerusalem. People are singing his praises. It's supposed to be his coronation as the long-awaited king of Israel. And so again, in God's providence, we're looking at that this morning. It's, it's my prayer that, that what grabs hold of you this morning is simply this. It's all about God's eternal plan, but more specifically than that, it's this. God's eternal plan culminates in an eternal king. God's eternal plan culminates in an eternal king. It's not an exaggeration to say that the story of Saul and his coronation or his appointment as king in, in chapter 9 and chapter 10 of 1 Samuel, it's intricately linked to the story of Palm Sunday. God's eternal plan, and we're going to look at a part of that this morning in 1 Samuel, culminates with an eternal king. And that, of course, is the Lord Jesus now, this morning's passage is all about providence. This is a, a theological term that I think it's really important for us to, to understand and to define. So I've actually put that in your sermon notes, just laying it out there for you. Providence is this. It is God's complete control over every area of life, from the smallest to the largest, for your good and for God's glory. I'm going to say that again. Providence is God's control, His complete control over every area of your life, from the largest to the smallest, for your good and for God's glory. Providence is oftentimes mysterious. We don't understand what God is doing. And sometimes it's bitter. We don't like what God is doing in our lives. And yet, we can know that God is at work, that God is loving, and God is working for our good in addition to for His glory. The providence of God is an anchor in the midst of the storms of life that you may experience because it reminds us that even when we don't understand what God is doing in our lives, when it seems like we're, we're just blind to what He is actually doing in our lives, we can, we can nevertheless trust that God is in control, that God is at work, and that God is good. 
Now, because we have so much that we're going to cover this morning, we can't go too in-depth, and, and so I'm not going to answer all the questions you may have from this text, and, and hopefully you'll do your own study in chapter 9 and chapter 10 later on this week. But I hope that these two chapters, as we look at them, they, they spur within us this confidence in the sovereignty of God that God is in control, this confidence in the plan of God, that God actually has a plan that he's working out in our lives as well. And ultimately, a confidence in the cross of Jesus as God's plan to bring us into his presence. Let's go ahead and pray as we approach God's word. Father, we, we thank you for your word this morning. As we consider your providence in this text, we ask that you would give us the faith to trust your loving hands, especially when times are hard, especially when we don't understand, we can't possibly fathom how you are at work in our lives. Jesus, we ask that you would enable us to see you clearly from this text so that we might give you the glory that you are worthy of. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you would give us eyes to see this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so our text starts in chapter 9 with this introduction to the family of Saul and then a brief introduction uh, of Saul himself. It says this, starting in verse 1. There was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, son of Zeror, son of Bacorath, son of Aphia, a Benjaminite, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. Last week, we were in chapter 8, and we saw there that the leaders of Israel, they come to Samuel and they say, hey, you know what, we want a king so that we can be like all of the other nations. And 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 20, gets at the heart of Israel's request. They didn't feel like God was doing a good enough job taking care of them good enough job providing for them, delivering them from their enemies. And so they said, we want a king to do that instead of you, God. We want a king who's going to sit on a white horse and lead us into battle to bring us victory. And then we get to chapter 9, and we see that the, the king that the people asked for is Saul. In fact, there's this play on words here in chapter 9. We have right after the people ask for a king like the nations, we're introduced to Saul, whose name literally means asked for. So they've asked for a king like the nations, and then we're introduced to Mr. Asked For, and how is he described? Well, he's the most handsome man in Israel. He's a looker. He's walking down the street, and everyone just stops and stares. Not only that, he's, he's taller than anyone in Israel as well. He's a physical specimen. I, I couldn't get this image out of my mind. When I was in high school, my favorite movie was Shrek 2. And if you're familiar with Shrek 2, Prince Charming is the bad guy in that story. Look it up on Google. Just look at what he, uh, later, if you don't know who I'm talking about. That's, that's Saul, this, this drop-dead gorgeous man that everyone wants to be around because he's so beautiful. And that's the king that the people of Israel wants. No one in Israel looks the part of a king more than Saul. Verse 3, now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So, Saul said to his, so Kish said to his son, take one of the young men with you and arise and go look for the donkeys. And he passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shalisha. 
but they did not find them. And they passed through the land of Shalim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of Benjamin, but did not find them. When they came back, or when they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. Saul is sent on this errand by his father because the family donkeys have wandered off. And this may not have been a regular occurrence, but it was common enough. It was something that occasionally would happen. And so Saul takes one of their servant slaves and he begins this three-day journey looking for the family's runaway donkeys. And they search all over the land of Benjamin, and they come up empty. And then on the third day, they arrive in the land of Zuf. And if you've been reading through the book of 1 Samuel, this name Zuf should spark a little bit of your memory. Because Zuf is this man that we're introduced to in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. It's the name of Samuel's great, great, great grandfather. So you get to the end of verse 5, and as you're reading through 1 Samuel chapter 9, there's this expectation as you're reading the text that something's about to happen. Even though everything to this point is extremely ordinary, something's about to happen because we've seen this name before. Samuel and Saul, their paths are about to cross. But it's not going to happen right away because as we see that... In, in, in maybe a break from what we're expecting here in this passage, especially for this soon-to-be king named Saul, he's ready to throw in the towel. Like, all right, well, we can't find the donkeys. Let's just go ahead, give up. Let's go back home. My dad's probably worried about us and, and not the donkeys by now, so let's go ahead and head home. Verse 6, but his servant said to him, behold, there is a man of God in this city, and he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. Then Saul said to his servant, But if we go, what can we bring the man? For our bread, the bread in our sacks is gone. And there's no present to bring the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again, Here I have with me a quarter of a shekel of silver, and I will give it to the man of God to tell us our way. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he said, Come, let us go to the seer for today's prophet was formerly called a seer. Now, the, the roles here are a little bit uh, the opposite of what you would expect as you are reading through this text. The future king is ready to give up, but his servant is the one who takes the lead and encourages them to keep going. He says, you know what, there's this man of God. He lives near us in the land of Zuf. We should go talk with him. Maybe he will be able to tell us where we can find these donkeys. And Saul is, is reluctant to do so because they don't have any gift to bring with them and to offer this prophet, this man of God. And how can they guarantee that this prophet is going to answer them when they come before him? And these verses don't really paint Saul in a good light. Just think about what we've seen so far in the book of 1 Samuel. When we're first introduced to Samuel, the prophet in 1 Samuel chapter 3, when he's called and commissioned as a prophet by God, we see this summary of the ministry and the life of Samuel at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 3 in verse 20. It says this, And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. But when we get to chapter 9, we realize maybe it should say this, and all Israel from Dan to Beersheba except for Saul knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. 
For decades, Samuel has been leading the people of Israel. He's been faithfully proclaiming the message of God to the people of Israel. Everyone from the northernmost part of Israel in Dan all the way to the southernmost part in Beersheba, they know who Samuel is. They know he's a prophet. They know that he's been commissioned by God except for Samuel. Or excuse me, except for Saul. Somehow Saul has never heard of Samuel before. And that probably tells us all we need to know about Saul's spiritual state. The thing is, it's not like Saul is from a different part of the territory of Israel. The distance between Ramah, where Samuel was headquartered in, where he did his ministry from, and Gibeah, Saul's hometown, is about two and a half miles. And yet for decades... Samuel has been faithfully proclaiming the word of God, and Saul has no idea who he is. No wonder he mistakenly concludes here that he has to bring some sort of gift to this prophet if the prophet is going to actually answer them. The things of God, they don't matter to Saul, and so he assumes that this God, he's a transactional God. The only way that God is going to help Saul out is if he brings something and he pays for it. And luckily for Saul, his servant was thinking ahead, has some money for their journey, and says this, well, I have some money. Let's bring it to him, and maybe he will give us our message. Verse 10, and Saul said to his servant, well said, come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. So Saul is convinced. And they go to Ramah. It says this in verse 11. As they went up the the hill to the city, they met young women coming out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered, He is. Behold, he is just ahead of you. Hurry. He has come just now to the city because the people have a sacrifice today on the high place. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, since he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up, for you will meet him immediately. They draw near to Ramah, and they encounter this group of young women outside the city gates. They're drawing water. Saul asks the women, hey, have you guys ever heard of this prophet, this man of God, this seer? Where does he live? And then they go into this really, really lengthy description of how Saul can meet Samuel. In fact, it's such a long description, which is incredibly unique for the Old Testament. The the Old Testament narrative is, is known for being very short and brief. So when it's very long, it should make us stop and say, well, what's going on here? Why are the women so uh, verbose when talking and describing this to Saul? One Hebrew tradition actually says, I kid you not, actually says it's because he was so beautiful that they were so nervous that they just started babbling and they couldn't stop themselves. Now, I can relate to that for the first time that I met my wife, but I don't think that's exactly what's happening. I think more likely what's happening is that they're, they're starting to say this to Saul and they read the blank expression on his face as they say more and more about what Saul or Samuel is like and then they give more information. Like, yeah, the, the prophet lives here. Oh, that, that didn't work? That's not enough? Okay, well, let me go a little bit further. He's here for a, a sacrifice. Oh, you don't know what a sacrifice is? Well, it's taking place on the high place. And they continue to go on and on. They see that Saul is this guy who knows nothing about the covenant faith of Israel. And so the women go into great lengths to describe what is happening here in Ramah. Let's pick up in verse 14. 
So they went up to the city. As they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. This verse is simultaneously sad and funny because Saul is heading into Ramah. He sees Samuel at a distance, but he, you remember, he's just found out that this guy Samuel actually exists. He has no idea what he looks like. And so he sees him off in the distance. He's like, oh, there's a townsperson. I'll ask him. I'll ask him about where this prophet lives. But before Saul and Samuel can meet, our text actually gives us this crucial flashback from Samuel's perspective. These verses, verses 15 through 17, are essential for chapter 9. It says this, Now the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel, Tomorrow about this time I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. He shall save my people from the hand of the Philistines, for I have seen my people, because their cry has come to me. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, Here is the man of whom I spoke to you. He it is who shall restrain my people. So a day before Saul arrives in Ramah, God speaks to Samuel, telling him about what is about to take place. And I mentioned that these three verses are key to understanding the providence of God at work in this passage. Without them, if you were to take verses 15, 16, and 17 and rip them out of the Bible, we would have no idea what is happening in verses 1 through 14. It would just be this story without a point about lost, runaway donkeys. It's the account of this man looking for his livestock. But when we get to verse 15, verse 16, and verse 17, we're given insight into what God is doing. And I wish we had the time to dive deep into these three verses. I just want us to, to consider the most important word here, and that is the word send. The word send. It is impossible to overstate the importance of the word send for our understanding of what God is doing in this world. Verses 1 through 14, they're not random. They're not even independent events that, that God somehow co-ops and says, okay, well, I'll take that and I'll make it a part of my plan. I'll take that and make it a part of my plan to, to accomplish my purposes. No, we see that from the very beginning, these runaway donkeys are orchestrated by God from the very hand of God to accomplish exactly what God intends to do. That runaway donkeys are a part of the eternal plan of God that will culminate with an eternal king. And here's the thing. God is doing the exact same thing in your life. It's just that you and I don't get verses 15, 16, and 17. God doesn't give us the behind-the-scenes look. And if he does, it's often a long time past where he reveals to us what he is doing in our life. Our lives are not random. They are not meaningless. Nothing is outside of the providential care of God for his creation and for his people. Just because you don't understand what God is doing in your life doesn't mean that God isn't doing anything in your life. Of course, we don't understand what God is doing. That's what the entire book of Job is about. 
that we can't grasp the way God is at work in our lives. That God might be doing a thousand things in your life and you might be aware of one, two, maybe three of them. And that's providence. That God is in control. God is completely and utterly in control of every area of your life. From the smallest to the largest. Now here's the best news about verses 15, 16, and 17. They don't just tell us that God is in control. They also tell us about God's character. Read through those verses and notice how many times God talks about my people. He emphasizes his relationship with his people. Notice the reason why God is intervening into human history is to save his people. This is essential for us to recognize that the the control of God over all things is never intended for our ill. It's always intended for our good. It may frustrate us. It may wound us. It may make us upset. We may wonder, why is God doing this? But the answer is never because God delights in our suffering. The answer is always God is at work for our good and his glory. That's the gift of providence. That God reigns over every area of your life and it's for his glory and for your good. That's the message of these first 17 verses here in chapter 9. It's God's mysterious providence brings about God's eternal purposes. God's mysterious providence brings about God's eternal purposes. God's providence is all too often mysterious. He sees fit not to tell us what he is doing in our lives. Last night, I was having a conversation with one of my sons, and he was asking why a couple weeks ago my, uh, my dad unexpectedly passed away, and we were talking about why God allowed that to happen. More than that, he asked, why isn't God telling us what he is doing? God never says that he's going to tell us. But God remains completely in control. And we can know that he's always at work for our good and for his glory. God's mysterious providence brings about his eternal purposes. One of the beautiful things about why God doesn't reveal to us what he is doing in our life is because he wants us to trust him for what he has revealed to us, what his character is like, that God is good and that we would trust in him. We would have faith in that, that he keeps his promises, that he will never forsake us, that he will never leave us. If your life feels like it makes no sense, if it feels like it's falling apart, you must run to the refuge of the providence of God, that not only is God completely and utterly in control, but he is completely and utterly good. God's mysterious providence brings about God's eternal purposes for his glory and for our good. 
All this has been orchestrated by God, so that way Saul and Samuel can meet, and Saul will be anointed as king. That's what we see picking up in verse 18. Then Saul approached Samuel in the gate and said, Tell me, where is the house of the seer? Samuel answered Saul, I am the seer. Oh, okay. Well, there we go. Go up before me to the high place, for today you shall eat with me, and in the morning I will let you go and will tell you all that is on your mind. As for your donkeys that were lost three days ago, do not set your mind on them, for they have been found. And for whom is all that is desirable in Israel? Is it not for you and for all your father's house? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjaminite from the least of the tribes of Israel, and is not my clan the humblest of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why have you spoken to me in this way? You see, this should be the climactic moment. This is where the the current leader of Israel and the future leader of Israel meet, and they discuss a transition of power. Instead, it's just another picture of sad humor. Hey, can you tell me where the seer lives? Well, I'm the seer. Verse 22. Then Samuel took Saul and his young man and brought them into the hall and gave them a place at the head of those who had been invited, who were about 30 persons. And Samuel said to the cook, bring the portion I gave you, of which I said to you, put it aside. So the cook looked, uh, took up the leg and, was, was, and what was on it and set it before Saul. And Samuel said, see what was kept is set before you. Eat, because it was kept for you until the hour appointed, that you might eat with the guests. So Saul ate with Samuel that day. Now, I've been pretty harsh on, on Saul to this point. I'll, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt here. I, I would have no idea what was happening at this moment. No idea what was happening at this point either. It's very clear from the way this text that Saul is just along for the ride at this point. He has no idea what's happening, but he's just, he's just following and he's going with the flow. Verse 25 again. And when they came down from the high place into the city, a bed was spread for Saul on the roof, and he lay down to sleep. Then at the break of dawn, Samuel called to Saul on the roof, up that I may send you on your way. So Saul arose and both he and Samuel went on, out onto the street. As they were going down to the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to pass on before us. And when he has passed on, stop here yourself for a while that I may make known to you the word of God. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you will save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. The next day, Samuel finally tells Saul what's happening. The king that Israel has asked for at Mizpah, well, that's you, Mr. Asked for. That's you, Saul. This is a part of God's eternal plan. But Saul, or excuse me, Samuel also has to make sure that this happens in private because he knows that God is going to have to convince Saul before this goes public. And to confirm this anointing of Samuel, he, he gives Saul three signs. He said, I know this is, this is going to be hard for you to believe, so let me tell you three things that are going to happen to you today. And he lists those coming up in the next verses. It says this, starting in verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel? And you shall reign over the people of the Lord, and you shall save them from the hand of their surrounding enemies. And this shall be the sign to you that the Lord has anointed you to be prince over his heritage. Okay, notice these three. 
First one is this. When you depart from me today, you will meet two men by Rachel's tomb in the territory of Benjamin at Zelzah. And they shall say to you, the donkeys that you went to seek are found, and now your father has ceased to care about the donkeys and is anxious about you, saying, what shall I do about my son? Sign two. Then you shall go on from there farther and come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to, the God, to God at Bethel will meet you there, one carrying three young goats, another carrying three loaves of bread, and another carrying a skin of wine. And they will greet you and give you two loaves of bread, which you shall accept from their hand. After that, you shall come to Gibeath Elohim, where there is a garrison of the Philistines. And there, as soon as you come to the city, this is sign number three, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place with harp, tambourine, flute, and lyre before them prophesying. Then the Spirit of the Lord will rush upon you, and you will prophesy with them and be turned into another man. Now when these signs meet you, do what your hand finds to do, for God is with you. Then go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I am coming down to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice peace offerings. Seven days you shall wait until I come and show you what you shall do. Now put yourself in, in Saul's shoes at this point. You're looking for donkeys, and you end up anointed king. You're anointed king by this stranger that you've never met, that you've never heard of to this point. It's completely unbelievable. So Samuel, again, gives him these three signs to say, hey, this isn't a fluke. This is something that God is doing. And notice how specific these signs are. They're not like a fortune cookie that could be interpreted many different ways and say, hey, that's true. No, it's very specific of what God is doing. Saul will be the future king. Notice verse 9. When he turned his back to leave Samuel, God gave him another heart, and all these signs came to pass that day. Verse 9 tells us that exactly what God said would happen, happens to Saul. All the signs come to pass. The text doesn't go into detail about the first two, but it describes a third one at length. It says this, When they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met him, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And he prophesied among them. And when all who knew him previously saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, What has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? And a man of the place answered, And who is their father? Therefore it became a proverb, Is Saul also among the, proverbs, or the prophets? When he had finished prophesying, he came to the high place. Why is it that that the book of 1 Samuel goes into detail about this third sign. And I think it's because of the role of the Holy Spirit. This is going to be really important for us as we continue in the book of 1 Samuel. Because the book of 1 Samuel does not give us a terribly flattering picture of Saul. We've seen that to this point, And yet, he is God's chosen king. That God has chosen him to be the king. The Holy Spirit has come upon him. God is going to use Saul to accomplish his purposes in Israel. He's going to do exactly what he has done with the judges in the past. Now, that's not to excuse Saul for all of his character flaws, and we're going to see that those actually only continue to increase as time goes on, and yet it is a recognition that Saul, in spite of all of his issues, is still the Lord's chosen instrument to accomplish his purposes. Pick up in verse 14. Saul's uncle said to him and to his servant, Where did you go? And he said, To seek the donkeys. 
And when we saw that they would not be found, we went to Samuel, and Saul's uncle said, Please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, He told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. But about the matter of the kingdom of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell him anything. Now again, I want you to to put yourself in that day. What happens? The Spirit comes upon Saul. Absolute shock for the people of Gibeah. This is in his hometown. This is the people that knew Saul growing up. They know his, his lack of care about the things of God. And now he's prophesying with a bunch of prophets. And a lot of the people... Are, are, are content after these events to just turn this into a, a, a proverb. And they say, hey, you know what? This is so unbelievable. Let's create an actual proverb about unbelievable things. Hey, is Saul also among the, pro- the prophets? One of the people, some of the people go further, like this man who says, and who was their father, basically making fun of him, mocking him in this moment. And yet there are some, like Saul's uncle, who suspect that something else is going on. Incidentally, this is probably Ner, the father of Abner, if you're familiar with the story of 1 Samuel, the eventual leader of Saul's army, Abner. And when his uncle comes to him, Ner asks Saul about these events, and Saul just keeps it to himself. He refuses to share. In spite of all of this confirmation to this point, he doesn't want word getting out that he has been anointed king. But don't worry. After some amount of, of time, we don't know how long goes by, Samuel calls another gathering of the people of Israel at Mizpah, just like he did back in chapter 7. This time, the private anointing of Saul is going to go public through the casting of lots. So Saul has been anointed privately, and now he will be chosen publicly. It says this, Now Samuel called the people together uh, to the Lord at Mizpah. And he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel out of Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have said to him, Set a king over us. So just like what we saw last week in chapter 8, Samuel reminds the people of Israel that their desire for a king is actually a rejection of God himself. That in choosing a king, you're saying, God, you're not good enough for us. The way you're doing things isn't good enough for us, so we want a king instead. And yet, what they intended for evil, God intends for good. He's going to use it as a part of his eternal purposes and plans. And so he says, let's go ahead and select a king. Verse 19 again. Now therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of of the Matrites was taken by Lot. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. So God confirms the events that took place in chapter 9 and earlier in chapter 10 through the casting of lots. The Lord is God over the large details and of the small, including the casting of lots, basically rolling dice to see who would be chosen. 
But when Saul is chosen king by lots, he's nowhere to be found. And so the, the people are confused. They're like, well, did someone just forget to show up? Are, are we still waiting on someone? And it probably would have been better if the answer was yes. Yes, someone did forget to show up. No, unfortunately, they did show up, and they're hiding in the baggage. Imagine a, a presidential inauguration where you're about to swear in the future president, and they're nowhere to be found until you check the coat closet. That's what's taking place in this moment. There's humility, and then they're shirking the hard responsibility that God has entrusted to you. This is another red flag for this future king of Israel. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, this is so funny. They ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And the people shouted, long live the king. I barely could get through that without laughing. I wonder if Samuel's statement here, it, I mean, it's got to be ironic, right? Saul is beautiful. Saul is tall, exactly what you expect from a king, and yet he was hiding. He's found hiding among the baggage. But character probably, I guess it doesn't matter to the people of Israel at that point, because as long as you look good. And so Samuel says, hey, look at the king. Yeah, we just found him hiding among the baggage, but he's here. Look how beautiful and, and tall he is. And the people say, good enough for me, long live the king. It's an affirmation of the one that God has chosen. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship, and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. You see, Samuel isn't done. The people of Israel may have their own idea of what a king is supposed to be like, but Samuel makes it abundantly clear what God expects from the king. This is almost certainly Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20. We looked at that last week, a crucial passage for understanding this selection of a king. Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 14 through 20, remind us of what God expects from the king. That the king is supposed to point people to the true king, to God himself. And even though Saul has all of these character flaws, even though he's this man who's a king like the nations, God still expects him to live out the responsibilities of a king. And the question we have as we get to the end of chapter 10 is, will he do this? Will Saul live out his responsibilities as a king? And then we look at the next several chapters and we see no. The problems that arise in chapter 9 and chapter 10 about Saul will continue in persistent sin, persistent issues that will last all the days of his life. Verse 25, then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship and he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah and with him went men of valor whose hearts God had touched. So the ceremony comes to an end, and we're given this epilogue, really, at the end of chapter 10. 
Everyone returns home, and that also includes Saul. He's been anointed king, but he's not acting like a king. He's not functioning as a king yet. And there are some people who go to Gibeah with him. Gibeah, again, is his hometown. It'll be the eventual capital under Saul of the people of Israel. And yet, while there are some who support him, that go with him, there are also some who despise him. Verse 27. But some worthless fellow said, how can this man save us. And they despised him and brought him no present. But he held his peace. And that's how the chapter ends. It's a pretty sobering way to end the chapter, maybe even a little confusing for us. What's the significance of this verse? Well, we're going to see it play out over the coming chapters, but I think it's a phrase that reminds us of Israel's rejection of God and the rebellion of God. Let me explain that. You see, Saul is, is far from the ideal king at this point. He's a king like the nations. Israel is going to suffer under his reign. He's the ultimate contrast to David. David is this king after God's own heart. He's this king that lives out all of the responsibilities of what a king is supposed to be, to lead the people in worship of God, to lead them to the true king, to God himself. And yet... In spite of all of Saul's flaws, he's still chosen by God. He's still the Lord's chosen king. And just like the flawed judges that came before him, he's still the Lord's instrument of deliverance from the Philistines. And so if Israel rejects Saul, they're not just rejecting Saul, they're rejecting God. They're rejecting the Lord himself. And we're going to see, as we look at David, this is one of the things that makes him so unique. Such a God-centered man. Even after he has been anointed for king, or anointed king, he refuses to raise his hand to strike Saul because he recognizes that Saul is the Lord's anointed. That to curse Saul is to curse God. To reject Saul is to reject God. To despise Saul is to despise God. And I think here is where we see the connection to Jesus. Do you see the connection to Jesus? Saul, in spite of all of his flaws, all of his shortcomings, all of his failures, should lead us to Jesus. Because the king, like the nations, shows us our need for the king of the nations. This man, Saul, a king like the nations, should point us to Jesus, the king of the nations. We look at Saul, we look at verse 27 with how people respond to him. And, and I don't know about you, but I'm forced to turn inward, to look at my own hearts. To, to see, well, am I rejecting God just like the, the, the people here did by rejecting the plan of God? Do I harbor this heart of rebellion against God himself, against the king of the nations, against Jesus? That this king, like the nations, shows us, points us to Jesus, the king of the nations. And that's where we see Palm Sunday come into play. 
See, Palm Sunday, this day where we, the church, remember Jesus' entry into his capital city, into Jerusalem. If you've been in the church, you know or are familiar with the story of Palm Sunday. Jesus enters into Jerusalem riding on a colt. He's journeying with this group, this crowd of other pilgrims for Passover. And on Palm Sunday, we see Jesus' true identity on display if we're willing to look. Now, to be very clear, it wasn't obvious. It was not overt. If the Roman authorities would have understood that Jesus entering into Jerusalem was a coronation parade, that it was a declaration that he was king, they would have arrested him on the spot. And it would have been brought up in his trial. The accusations against Jesus, they would have been brought up before Pilate. So while the crowd and the response to Jesus on Palm Sunday certainly is one fit for a king, I don't think it would have been obvious for those who weren't looking for a king. That's what we see in the cry of the crowds. Consider Mark chapter 11. Verses 9 and 10, it says this. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. You see, the Passover was one of the largest holidays for the Jewish people. Jewish people would gather in Jerusalem from all over the world. And on the way to Jerusalem, they would sing a collection of psalms called the Hallel, or praise. That's where our word hallelujah comes from. And these psalms were sung during Passover, and they would culminate with Psalm 118. We sang that or read that earlier. It's a song declaring the victory of God's chosen king over his enemies. And consider, especially, Psalm 118, verse 25 and 26. It says this, Save us, we pray, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The connection is probably even clearer when we leave one of these words untranslated. We pray, Hosanna, O Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So on Palm Sunday, as people are journeying into Jerusalem with Jesus, they encounter him and they're crying out, this, say, this typical Passover greeting, they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's not necessarily a declaration of who Jesus is as much as a, a declaration that you would say to anyone on Passover as they're making their journey to Jerusalem. Hey, you're coming in the name of the Lord. You're coming to Jerusalem because of, because of God and his saving power. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're shouting this out. And the irony, of course, is that while the crowds mean it as a regular Passover greeting, as they cry out, save us, Lord, Hosanna, 
the man whose name literally means the Lord saves, Jesus is entering into the city. He's entering into the city, not just to save the Jewish people, but to save people from every language, tribe, and nation. The crowds have no idea the significance of what they are saying. They thought this is just a typical Passover greeting that they're just saying to someone else, and yet it is a statement of fact that Jesus is coming to save his people. Not from Roman oppression, but from oppression of sin and of the devil. And that's not all. Notice how anticlimactic Mark's account of Palm Sunday actually is. Here is Jesus. He's entering into Jerusalem. We, we should see this really as his coronation parade. He's entering into Jerusalem. The, the crowds are shar- shouting praises, and, and they, they could be received by Jesus whether they realize it or not. And then he arrives in Jerusalem. He heads to the temple, and what happens then? Verse 11. And Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And that's how the story ends. I mean, you've never noticed that before. What's the significance? Back to Psalm 118. We pray, Hosanna, O Lord, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, we bless you Where? From the house of the Lord. You catch how the song song ends there in verse 26? The song ends with this blessing from the house of the Lord. Psalm 118 is this song of victory and deliverance for the people of God through God's chosen king, and it's meant to end in the temple. At the temple, the celebration of God's deliverance through his king is supposed to reach its culmination and all of this worship, all of this adoration for God and for his chosen king is supposed to happen in the temple and then we get to Palm Sunday and we should be expecting these huge things once we get to the temple. We should be expecting Jesus to come into the temple, him to be crowned king. We should expect all of Jerusalem to be standing there waiting for him, saying, save us, Lord. Blessed is he, the chosen king, who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. We should expect choirs to be waiting for him, the religious authorities to be waiting in the temple for him to say the Lord has finally come to his temple, like in Malachi chapter 3, and then we get there. And Jesus looks around, and there's nothing. There's no one waiting for him. Even the crowds that were singing earlier, they've gone. No priests, no religious authorities should be the high point the culmination of Jesus' life and ministry. The beginning of his eternal kingdom. And instead, we get this. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. 
The silence in the temple is deafening. They've rejected the king here through their indifference. You see, just like people rejected Saul, Palm Sunday ends with the rejection of Jesus. Not necessarily overt, just indifference. Palm Sunday ends with the first steps to the cross already being taken, with the Messiah already rejected. Do you see how Psalm, uh, 1 Samuel 9 and 10, they point us to Jesus, they point us to Palm Sunday? It's a part of God's eternal plan that culminates with an eternal king. But more than that, it's a reminder of this king who is rejected and who will go to the cross to establish his eternal kingdom. And every step of the way, from Genesis to Revelation, God is working out his plan. He is orchestrating runaway donkeys and a reluctant king, and he uses that reluctant king to establish his purposes, culminating in a true king, the person of Jesus. This is his eternal plan, an eternal king that brings salvation for people like you and me. This Palm Sunday, if you are left wondering, where is God? What is God doing in my life? Might I suggest looking to 1 Samuel chapter 9, 1 Samuel chapter 10. This is a message about a God who is at work in your life even when you cannot see it, even in the hard, even in the painful, and he is at work for your good and for his glory. It's a message about a king, the king of glory, who uses runaway donkeys and a reluctant king as a part of his plan to give us an eternal, perfect King, Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, this Palm Sunday, we ask that you would increase our faith. Help us to see how you are at work in our lives. Help us to trust when we cannot see that you indeed are at work in our lives. Lord, we ask that you would help us to not be those who reject you through indifference, not be those who reject you overtly, as we saw on Palm Sunday, but to be a people who cry out, save us, Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, knowing exactly what we mean, that you are the chosen king, the culmination of God's eternal plan, the eternal king, Jesus. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.